Hello and welcome back. I'm Christopher Calloway and this is Creator Talks. The United States is a nation sharply divided by political ideology. Left versus right, liberal versus conservative. We've even formed geographic boundaries around the dominant political position of a region. For example, in daily parlance, we speak of blue big cities and red rural areas. My guest today is comic book writer and artist Tim Seeley. Tim is perhaps best known for his horror comics, Hack and Slash and Revival. Having lived in both urban and rural areas, Tim has experienced firsthand the frustration and political division between demographically divided denizens. Tim has focused his creative energy to explore this division through his upcoming comic book, Dark Red, being published by Aftershock. It's the story of Charles Chip Ipswich. He has a dead-end job in a rural area in the middle of the country with no prospects. That is, until a very special woman comes to town. The twist? Chip is a vampire. Tim and I begin by discussing the state of the comic book industry. Next, Tim shares his thoughts on the rural-urban political divide and how it influenced Dark Red. I conclude my interview with Tim by kicking back with the creator. Tim tells me how he relaxes, his choice of island book, and the oddest job he ever had that allowed him to develop one of his comics. Today's interview is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. Let's catch up with writer and artist Tim Seeley, who's in the process of looking for a house. Here now on Creator Talks. Tim, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks for having me. Tim, are you house shopping right now? <laughs> yeah, kind of. How's it going? <sighs> not that good. I mean, it's hard in Chicago. The salary you make as a comic book creator is all right, but it's not enough to afford a house in the city, so you have to kind of go in the fringes or get a condo or something. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a treat. Are you looking for more space? Yeah, I live in a condo, and then I got married, and we live in an apartment now, and then we're just kind of trying to find something you know, bigger, has space for us both working because my wife is a painter. And uh, so we kind of need something with some studio space, but we don't want to live far in the suburbs. We don't want to live in the country. So trying to find something in the city is significantly more difficult than I expected. But you want something that's ready to live and you're not interested in a fixer-upper. I have no skills with that stuff whatsoever. No time. You know, like <laughs> comics is like a 60, 70 hour a week job. So I don't know if I could get inspired to come home and start hammering up drywall or redesign. It's just like, I just don't have that sort of, you know, bandwidth or skill, I think. It's hard. And I have no skill either. It never stopped me, but I've done it a couple times just to fix up the place I was living in. And now when it's like the sink's leaking, I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to fix something yeah. else in the house. You know, you get to a point where you're like, I am sick of it. And you're right. It takes a lot of time. You save money, but how much time do you want to spend? And with your work, <laughs> that's going to get pushed aside. You can't afford to spend time doing that. Yeah. My creative skills do not extend beyond paper, really. But that's, <laughs> that's just kind of the reality of it. Well, let's talk about your work. And I want to start with the business side of it. Um, you've had success with your own creations, Hack and Slash, Revival, Sundowners, and with your work for hire, Shatterstar, Nightwing, and Green Lanterns. Since we're just entering the shallow waters of 2019, I'd like your thoughts on the direction of the market this year. Do you think this will be a good year that we'll see more growth in print comic sales? And what do you think would help boost those sales? The last few years have been all growth years as far as overall sales. But I think we're getting to a spot 
where we're finally going to have to sort of really think about the retail part of this, the stores, the physical spaces, because the growth in the last few years has been via book sales, you know, at bookstores and been digital. So uh, I think at a certain point, we're, we're going to meet this sort of wall that we're going to hit with the amount of stores that exist, the difficulty of opening a store, the difficulty of maintaining a store, and just how much support the publishers and stuff are giving to that. So I feel like 2019 might be that year where we're going to start really asking the question is like, is this a viable method of distribution? And if it is, and I think it is, but how do we have to change it to sort of keep it growing instead of put people in a position that I think a lot of store owners end up being in, which is kind of surviving month to month. And there's really little room for growth. And it's just, it's a hard business all based on pre-order and all this sort of things that don't allow for, I think the kind of growth that most retail could. So yeah, I think 2019, 2020 is really going to be the point at which that becomes more obvious. Either we're going to get a number of stores to open or we're going to have more stores closing. Well, the movies haven't pushed sales at comic stores. Occasionally, I hear someone come in and say, oh, where can I start with Aquaman? Where can I start with Cap? But it's not like there's been a big bump. Probably more of those people would go to a Barnes & Noble or Amazon because they just don't feel comfortable going into a comic shop because maybe they think that, you know, oh, it's more of a geek culture. It's not something that's approachable by the general public. I don't think the movies have done it, even though they've been a lot of fun. My local comic shop, the comic book shop, they do a lot of events. So they know, and I'm sure you've seen this too in your area, they've got to be very much in touch with the community, having events, having get-togethers. That really, I think, without any knowledge of how they do in their finances, really helps them sustain themselves because the monthly ordering is hard. You know, people right. drop off after the first few issues. It just naturally happens that the numbers go down after issue yeah. number one, which is why we see with more of the, quote, mainstream comics, a lot of reboots, which frankly drives me nuts. What are your thoughts about that whole numbering process? Are the big comic book companies shooting themselves in the foot, alienating more readers ticking off the long-time readers, or is there some method to that madness besides boosting sales short-term to get a bump? I mean, I know why they do it. It's a short-term fix. It's fine. I don't think it helps that much for bringing in new readers, and I don't think it helps that much. In the end, I don't think it really helps. It doesn't do much. You know, it's just a, a stopgap. But I think the, the problem just in general is that the movies bring in a lot of fans who are interested in characters, but the way that the average local comic book store is set up is not towards being the most accessible part to new readers. That's not really what they do. Their job is to keep these long-term fans happy and, and to keep them coming in and to keep them picking up their pull box and to keep them talking. And I think it's just as much the majority of people being introduced to comics who actually read are women. The average comic book store is not particularly friendly to women. That's a huge problem. I mean, these are the readers. Men aren't great readers. They play video games and they don't actively, as, as in the numbers that women do. So I think that's a huge part of the problem is that it's become a culture war where these sort of, the people who have been reading for a long time, they feel sort of ignored and pushed out if they're not catered to, which is inaccurate, but it, it's the way that they sort of feel about it. And they their backlash is to attack the new readers who they feel are the ones taking this away from them. So, I mean, it's just culturally you're, you've got something set up to appeal to those sort of readers. And then by de design, you've made something that is unwelcoming to the new kind of audience that does exist. I mean, the majority of people, surprisingly, that are you know out in the world interested in reading a Captain America comic right now, it's probably 50% women, if not more, just because that's the people who the movie brings in. 
so I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's the thing we have to rectify. It's the thing that is slowing down uh, bigger progress. It's, it's just this culture war thing. And, but, and that's obviously going across America. It's like, well, the whole world, really, that we're dealing with that. So I, I don't know. I mean, that, and that, I don't think rebooting something at number one potentially just sort of says, this is where you start. The, the effect wears off after a while. It doesn't establish any kind of real game because eventually you're at issue 17 anyway. And at some point, you're sort of asking the reader to either go with it and pick something up in the middle, or you're saying, like, oh, we have to go back and reboot it again, and it's a short-term fix. And it doesn't, it's not even really, I don't know, important, I think. In the, in the larger scheme, I think it's one of the least important things that we're dealing with is that, you know? Yeah, distribution is probably the hardest thing. And with companies having downsized and reduced staff overhead, my concern now is what's next. They're going to say, hmm, you know, we spent an awful lot on distribution, the shipping, getting the books to the stores. Oh, there's weather delays. There's all kinds of issues. You know, my concern is they may just cut that next, but I don't think they can do that until they have a strong enough digital base readership. Yeah, there's a sort of misconception, I think, that comics don't make enough money for these companies and that they wouldn't want to that why would they bother to do them? And the truth is they do make a lot of money. And people sort of like, well, look how much money Deadpool movie makes versus Deadpool comic. It's apples and oranges. I mean, what a movie makes and what a movie is considered profitable and all these things is completely different accounting than print sales of books delivered to a store. The profit on those is still very much keeping those companies in a profitable zone. And it's keeping them in a way that I, I think there's a mistake to think that they would just abandon that for digital because that would be a disaster. There may be some need to change the way they're done at a certain point. I think you're seeing experiments towards like, well, what if we release a direct to full trade? I think there's going to be experiments in that because there are things about distribution method that are expensive and dumb and don't work. But I don't think we're in any sort of place where anybody's giving up the print side of this business, especially since the main growth in the last few years has been in bookstores. There's a different delivery, I think, at bookstores. You're not seeing as many monthly comics. It's more trade-based. It's more hardcover and special edition-based. But that is such a bigger market than digital even. So I don't think it's something people have to worry about. A couple of things, actually, I've seen publishers do in the past year or so, which I think helps, is having those $1 issues to get people started on a particular series, kind of an introduction. And sometimes they do that with digital editions, too. And they've also done magazines to help promote the comic books. There was DC Nation and Foom and Image Plus. And those are a great way to find out about the creators, the books coming up. But there's a cost to those, of course. And I used to work in magazines. And magazines are generally supported by the advertising. It's not the subscriber base so much anymore. Yeah, those would just be a loss leader. Yeah, exactly. Because I think all three that I mentioned are gone now. They don't do them anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a worthwhile experiment. But I know for Image Plus, you know, it was just sort of a idea that if you could get the average reader to check that out, and that would be their sort of guide to, you, it would be a loss leader for the company. Overall, you get people to pick up more books. And, and it's just hard to track. It's hard to say that the magazine led to the sales of other things. It's really for the retailer. It's not for the average uh, reader. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think those are great, but they're not the sort of be all end all of the means of marketing comics to readers. You know, I think we'll find something else. And But like you said, the, the dollar books work, digital sales work. Those things get people into things. And then just buzz. I mean, you know, people go to a comic book store because it's physical and they want to be part of a community and they hear that something is interesting or new or great and they that's what gets them to pick it up. It's just hand-selling and 
people talking to each other. That's always been the way it is, and it's something you can't pay for. That's the kind of thing that you're really always in the end saying, well, do we drop $80,000 a month on a magazine, or do we just hope that we drop something that people connect to and and let that do the, the selling for us. I think the word of mouth, the buzz is important for anything, any entertainment, anything you consume, any service you need, because there's a lot of information out there. But unless you hear from someone, even your shop owner, hey, this is a great series. Do you like this? Well, you're going to love this. You should check this out. Would you like yeah. to put it in your pool box? So that really goes a long way. I think that a lot of the things they had in the magazines, which were expensive to produce, and yes, lost leaders for sure. It's better to put those in the comics as back matter, especially in the print copies only to get sure. them sold. I think it adds value. The person who's going to read the comic is interested in that particular back matter. And I think another thing they could do, and I know some publishers do it, is include ads, the house ads, which doesn't really bring them any direct revenue, of comics that fall within the same genre as the book the person just read right. you know, from that same publisher or something by that person also from the same publisher. Kind of target the print ads more for the reader. And then they could probably measure better how they're getting the sales. For sure. I mean, it can be tough at Image is that do your book as a creator and then you've got, let's say, eight extra pages an issue and it's discretionary. Someone like uh, Brian K. Vaughan or Tosaka, they didn't put ads for other people's books in theirs because he was trying to make sure that they maximize the value of the comics so it would have back matter appropriate to that. But the problem is then you're not spreading it across the line. You're not spreading the success of Saga to other books, right? And you can't enforce that because Image is based on a model of creator participation. And so that's what makes it difficult to get people to buy that sort of stuff or to be to discover it because if they're reading Saga, it's insular. It has no connection to other books. They determine what what goes in there. You know, and that's something I personally would probably change about a company like Image or other things. But I think you know, Dark Horse, IW, and other places have been pretty good about you know cross promoting their books and and they have mild success with it. I think it's just you only have a couple, unfortunately. Mostly in the case of with comics, is like you have about two weeks really to get somebody if they picked up another book and they saw an ad for something they found interesting. It's very short, but that amount of time in a store and people talking, that's more effective. Like you're just building awareness at this point. Like, oh, I heard this book came out. You're really trying to get whatever that little moment of perfect heat that like something like Mr. Miracle got or where books were, I don't know why they connect, but they do. And that's what sells them is the buzz, the people talking, the I can't believe this book. That That's the thing that seems to work now. It's the only thing as far as I can tell that seems to work. Another problem affecting retailers not with new sales. And this is something you have probably seen attending a lot of cons or heard about. And I would want your thoughts on this is that they struggle going to cons to set up a table, sell back issues and what have you, because more of the dollars from the attendees are going to either getting commissions or buying other things at the con, but not really right. being so much there for the books anymore. That's really kind of gone down. And I know for some retailers, it's like, look, it's just not worth it to us. It's killing us. And we barely break even. What do you think they could do? Because I like going to the cons, not only to meet people, which is great. That's the best part. But also, I like looking for that odd back issue here and there. Kind of enjoy that diving through the back issue bins. What can we do so that it's profitable for the dealers as well as for the artists and writers who are going there to meet the public and help promote their work? Yeah, I just I don't know if there is a way. I mean, the con experience has changed from what it used to be. It used to be... You know, this is 20, no, this is like 30 years ago now. I always forget how old I am. But when I was in, you know, a teenager or, or when I was 10, 11 years old, I would go to conventions, 
with the express purpose of filling out my long box with books that I knew I couldn't find in my local store and stuff. And it's just not that way anymore. You can get anything anytime. If you really want a back issue, just buy it on online. There is no need for the convention to be that kind of, you know, swap meet at a flea market that it used to be. I mean, I think people do it because it's fun and you may shop with a sort of discretionary, you know, or just because you're going with friends and it's social. But I don't think it's the mission of a convention. The mission of a convention now is just like you said. It's to meet the people who make the things, the things you can't do from your house, to go to panels experience-based. Uh, it's not consumption-based. So you, I don't think that's – you can't put that back in the bottle. You, you'd have to shut down eBay and Mile High Comics Online and everything else that makes it easy to buy things from your desk and from your laptop. So I, I think you just have to roll with it. If you want to sell things to people at conventions, you need to make something they can only get there. Have an exclusive, you know, have a con exclusive cover, have something people want. There's always going to be a certain market for back issues, but it's no longer the sort of all we got to do is drag out the long boxes and we're good to go. It's not the way things work anymore. And I would say for those that do go to the cons and sell books, it's really helpful if they're organized, not just like dumped in a box because I like to hunt, but not that much. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so much time. When I was a kid, a really big pleasure side of going to convention was, you know, I didn't have that much money, so I would take 10 bucks and I would go quarter bin diving and I would end up with 40 comics for $10, uh, which was awesome. I think that, that that sort of thing still has appeal. Um, but again, you're not making much on the weight of those books, right? <laughs> if you're dragging around long boxes in the back of your Suburban, like, it's weighty, you know, and you have to justify the pounds versus how much you're getting if you're getting a quarter book, whatever. So, yeah, I think it's tough, but there's no putting that genie back in. It's never going to happen. But I do think cons are more successful now than they ever were overall. I think for creators, they become a, a sort of secondary income because even if you just do like New York and C2E2 and Emerald City or Heroes or something like those big shows, that's a significant portion of, uh, of your yearly income, selling sketches and selling original arts and, and doing that sort of stuff. I've done cons, you know, I did this Ace Con, which is, I think, by the makers of Wizard World. And it was really celebrity-based. So it was like Chris Evans and the cast of Avengers. And it was $250 to get a signature with those people. And there was like, I don't know, 25 comic people sort of thrown in. Even though that was a terrible convention that wasn't even really focused on. I mean, it's a terrible convention for me, hypothetically. Because I'm not the one there to see me, it still was okay. People still bought comics. You know, people off the street came in there and said, oh, I I didn't know that, that Thanos had a series. You know, like, I, I watched it happen, so I know it works. But I think it was hard for the retailers there. I think it was really hard for, like, the original art dealers I sat by. It depends on the crowd, I think. But it's still a viable way of doing business for a lot of people and i think it may be even more successful now than it ever was you can certainly tell by the attendance numbers because <laughs> those things are packed <laughs> yeah and conventions have become something else too because when i was a kid you had to very specifically want to go to a convention you didn't know what was happening unless you saw the ads for it in the back of a magazine of a comic you went there with a specific mission in mind the only people there were hardcore fans now you know, on a Sunday at C2E2, there's people who are just like, hey, it's a thing to do in Chicago. The husband and wife take their kid out and they go walk around the convention and check it out. Uh, they may not be big time comic fans. They may just be peripherally interested in the stuff at all. But it's a thing to do. It's no longer a weird thing. It's no longer something that you have to be part of the community to go to. I see it all the time. And I think that's good. And a certain percentage of those people do end up buying some comics or maybe find out that they're really curious about you know, some creator-owned book that's not even related directly to the movies they've seen or whatever. So, you know, it's still good. That part, we have to be, like, 
really proud of that it became what it has because it could have gone such a different direction. You know, conventions could have gone in the direction like, you know, I'm sitting on a Sunday at a flea market selling whatever signed little cards I have and 10 people come up all day. That could be the biggest convention we have. It's, it could have gone in an entirely different direction. You mentioned that you used to buy, you still do buy comics, but you mentioned that you used to buy them at a very young age, saving your money. Do you still have the first comics that you bought and which ones left a really big impression on you that you can remember where you were when you bought it and where you were when you sat down and read it? Yeah, I mean, I have most of my, I've got rid of a lot, a lot of my comics over the years, but I gave a lot of like the ones that were, you know, kids stuff to kids in the hopes of getting them into comics. But I still have most of my shit. It's in the basement of my apartment right now, but. I mean, I guess the ones I, I remember real distinctly is when I was 11, we went to uh, my first Chicago Comic-Con. I bought the entire run of Watchmen for, well, everyone that was out at the time for $8. I got them for a dollar a piece. I was way too young to read Watchmen, and this is 30 years, 1989, I think it was, or whatever. When it, it was after it had come out, or it had already started. It was late when it came out. I can't remember exactly. I guess it must have been 1988 is what it was. But I just remember buying those in, like... <laughs> We come down from Wisconsin, we go to Chicago Comic Con, we stay at my aunt's house. And I distinctly remember sitting on her porch reading Watchmen, being like, oh my God, I have to hide this. Because it, you know, it, it was so above my head, but also I was so into it. But I mean, I also remember one of my favorites when I was, I think I was 17 or maybe, I went down to Chicago Comic Con with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, she's really pretty. And people would stop and take pictures of her because they're like, I can't believe there's a girl at a comic convention. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we were in 1994. Uh, I remember I met Rob Schraub, who does uh, Scud, the Disposable Assassin. I bought that first issue because I was like, this looks so weird. And he said, you want me to do a sketch? And I was like, I don't have a sketchbook. All I have is a notebook. And he was like, no, that's perfect. And he took my notebook and with a ballpoint pen drew a Van Halen logo. And he said, now it looks like my notebook from when I was a kid. So there you go. <laughs> Very memorable to me. Your own comic, Dark Red, is coming out through Aftershock. It's a vampire story, so let's talk a bit about vampires and horror. I'm a horror film fan of the old movies. What was the first horror film or story that you remember watching or reading? The uh, first movie I remember watching was Fright Night, a vampire movie, which this movie or this comic is sort of my homage to Fright Night in a weird way, but it's, they're nothing alike, except that I named the character Charlie after Charlie and <laughs> Charlie Brewster in Fright Night. But yeah, I mean, I remember. You know, I was, I don't know, eight, nine, and my dad would have watched all these horror movies all the time, and I would always walk, he had this, like, little room downstairs, it was kind of his, his man cave before that was a thing, and he would just watch horror movies, I remember watch, walking by and seeing Evil Ed and being horrified, but curious, I think I had a couple nightmares after seeing that from afar, and then was like, you know what, dad, I would really like to watch that, so... <laughs> So I kind of got into horror movies by being disturbed by them, I think, the way you're supposed to. And then just uh, when I was a kid, my dad would also, um, he would occasionally buy comics, like maybe have some free time and want to read something. So he'd pick up like Heavy Metal or Conan or Vampirella, and then he would just give them to my brothers and I after he read them. So I remember having the Warren era Vampirella magazine, um, and uh, I think maybe Dracula, I can't remember, because they were so much... They were black and white, and they were so much grittier seeming than comics I would get at the Red Owl, you know. They were just, there was something illicit about them, or I, and I really liked it. So I think that's kind of what always put me in a, on the path to doing horror stuff. Well, as a horror writer, what makes a horror story great from your experience? What elements would you say are essential, and which one do you feel are not and tend to get exploited 
in some horror stories. I'm fine with exploitation in general in horror stories, but I think the thing that needs to they need to have to work is some kind of honesty. So it has to have some kind of really recognizable thing that puts the viewer or reader into the place of the protagonist. You know, whether it's some kind of emotional honesty or just uh, sort of a situation, it has to feel connecting to everyone, I think. So that's why something like Get Out works so well or uh, the original Halloween. I mean, it's such an honest, easy, accessible scenario, you know, like being the babysitter alone with the kids. Everybody gets that. So, yeah. But I think the things that don't tend to work and sort of get exploited and end up, you know, just kind of falling flat are just like the, the need to sort of to like offend or punish the viewer, I think, in some ways. Like, I think you have to keep it. I mean, that can work sometimes, but. The things that me that seem to just not hit is playing against their expectations and then punishing them for liking horror movies, whether it's being like super gory or really transgressive. That's not my favorite kind of stuff. I'd like to be some kind of humor. I mean, I think a lot of stuff I've seen lately is come back to or using humor in horror films. But there was a while there where they were just like so dour and punishing, like all the Saw movies or any of that kind of stuff where it's just like dour and not fun, you know? Although some of those are fun in their way, but yeah, I try to keep my stuff fun. And there's as many laughs as there are scares because those things are not so far different, you know? Well, Dark Red is not a traditional vampire story in the sense that there are going to be contemporary themes you're going to explore in the series. Now, you can mention Chip Ipswich. He is a rural vampire. What are some of the things that Chip has to struggle with and why does he resent them so much? At the time, I was like, how do I do something new with a monster that I haven't really seen? And obviously, at some point with those legendary monsters, I've seen just about everything. But I kind of was struck by the the idea that there's always some glamour associated with vampires, no matter how gritty you get them. Even like something like Near Dark, I, I guess. In this, the idea is sort of like, this is just hard. He's afraid to some degree to to reveal who he is because he knows that he'll get killed for it. He doesn't want to live in the city where he'd have connections to other vampires. Um, so he's sort of punishing himself in a way because he hates this sort of urban elite. And so he lives in this place that's difficult for him to be and sort of is in a way bitter about the fact that it's hard, even though he chose it because it's like a moral choice. I think he's trying to prove something to himself maybe, or to the whole country which I think is obviously kind of a metaphor for the world in general now. And I'm as a guy who I lived in a small town and had to leave it, and I can't go back because there's nowhere, there's no work for me. Um, I have to leave my family, and I had to go out in the world, and I had to do that sort of thing. It's sort of an exploration based around that. There's obviously a really big urban-rural divide now in this country, and the idea is like, how do you explore that, but also make a really fun, scary twisted vampire story. I know it's realistically impossible to eliminate the division we see in the country now. What do you think needs to be done to lessen the division that we see now? Oh, man. I mean, part of it has to be that we have to accept a certain set of facts, which getting to that point, I think, is going to be the hardest part. Basically, what it comes down to, I think, is that rural people are going to have to deal with feminism and they're going to have to stop being racist. Because though it's a very small part of their lives, it's built into the way they live. To some degree, rural living is based on traditional living, which is great. That shouldn't be eliminated and shouldn't be looked down upon. I think the problem that we keep coming to is that the progressive cities, the liberal elite cities, have made some choices that use people in rural places. The rich live in the cities, that the center development is the cities. But 
it's to their advantage to manipulate the economy and, and to take advantage of those people to make them work for cheaper and have less health care for them to have less retirement, for them to have less security. It's to the advantage of that. I think that gets blamed on, it's right, the rich industrialists, the rich tech companies, the rich, all these, they're taking advantage of those people and those people are suffering for it. That needs to change. But the rural people have to let go of their racism and sexism. That's the only way forward that they'll be recognized as being, as sort of in a sad way of being sympathetic to these people who have moved past that. It's a really weird catch-22 because I, I think the parts of the things I think rural people hang on to, which is like this rugged individualism and this, this self-reliance, those are all really respectable things. And they come from living in a rural place, right? I grew up with that. I know how that is. You live in a place where you have to do that. There's no one to help you. But to the degree that they've been actively harmed by people is what makes them bitter. That harm needs to stop. And that sort of rampant capitalism that punishes those people needs to stop. But also, there's just going to have to be a loss for them in the culture war. It's just going to have to be. If you want to move on with the rest of us, you can't rely on the old sexism and old racism. So no surprise, it's going to have to be movement on both sides, and there's going to be some pain, emotional or uh, difficulty accepting change and letting go of certain things. It's not going to be one-sided. Yeah, well, definitely not. I'm a progressive, and I am a now an urban elite in quotes, right? But I grew up in those places, and, and I still go back there, and I still have all my family there. So I see that when a town has this sort of lifeline, it has a factory, it has a place that makes everyone feel valuable because they're contributing and it provides them a living and it allows them to buy a house and it allows them to have their family, then they feel good about themselves. And then that's taken away because it's cheaper to move that somewhere else. And they see that the person who did it is off in New York, is a banker, it's a <laughs> corporate bigwig. How can they not be mad at those people? And they have every right because those people aren't seeing the damage they do. They just see the stockholders. They just see the bottom line. And that's a really populist belief for me, which, though I'm a progressive populist, I understand the conservative populism that went through the country in 2016. So this story is sort of about that. I think it's about me understanding your anger from a different side. But I think it's very similar. So in your story, are the rural vampires going to meet the urban ones? Eventually, yeah. And it's definitely about that. This first arc is, you know, we, we're introduced to Chip and then someone comes to town promising him something and messing everything up. And it all comes down to that sort of the urban rural vampire divide. <laughs> but yeah, it's just that the vampires in the city have the access, right? They have networks. They can help each other out with a place to hide when it's the sun comes up and they can do all that sort of stuff. They're fashionable and they, they know the latest cool shit and they all dress all gothy and stuff like that. So we're going to play, it's sort of like, there's a character in Near Dark who's a sort of hick vampire. We sort of pick up, like, let's say that's the only guy and all the other vampires are Twilight, basically, right? Like, it's like this sort of gritty, <laughs> gritty, hard, uh, rough vampire stuck in the world. He hates all those douchebags that are Twilight vampires. Now, with this book, I have you as the writer, is what I see, and I also see Corin Powell as the artist. But in my solicitation here, I also see interior art by Tim Seeley. So, Tim, how's this working with Corin? I'm doing layouts. I didn't know that was in the solicitation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did layouts in it for the book. So I wrote a first draft of a script. Then I laid it out for Corin, and she's drawing it. And then I'm going back through and doing so many versions of the dialogue obsessively, almost probably mentally ill, uh, how many times I'm rewriting this thing to make it perfect. But yeah, so it's kind of more of a collaboration that way. I think I started out drawing, so I've kind of wanted to get back to this way where I 
I'm telling the story visually to some degree, but it's okay if someone else does the actual art. Yeah, I didn't know I got credit for that, so neat. Well, it does say Tim Sealy writer, uh, Corin Powell artist, and Marshall Dillon letterer. But then on the other page it says interior art by Tim Sealy, and it shows a few pages as an example of what the art's going to be like. I did the character designs and stuff. And that's just a thing for me. It's a lot easier to write a character if I know what they look like. So I have to design a character first. They usually don't have their personality figured out. I mean, I think a lot of writers know their characters inside and out, but they can't draw. They have someone else to do it, but I need to draw them first. So that's how I do it. Well, let's talk about the artists. How is it working with Corin? It's been great so far. She um, was a suggestion by uh, Mike Martz, who I've worked with on a bunch of other stuff, going back to Batman. So he had sent me Corin stuff and said, I think she could do a really cool horror story because she does these really like kind of beautiful gothic kind of drawings. And I was like, yeah, perfect, because she won't be drawing any of that. Like, because this is a story that's sort of you know, the opposite of that. She's really good at drawing expressions and faces and stuff. So I can do the layouts and sort of indicate roughly an expression, and I know that she'll do a great job on it. Like, some of the things that I'm, I'm referencing are, like, a gas station I stopped at in the middle of Wisconsin where it was just, like, so specific that I, that I have to draw it out so I can tell her, you got to see this place. It's, this is what it looks like. And the cover of issue one is very arresting. Aaron Campbell, and I've uh, had him on the show, and he worked on Infidels. That's a beautiful cover. How'd you get him on the project? Aaron and I have been friends for about eight years, I think, maybe. Is it even longer than that? It's at least eight years. He's a friend of a friend. I met him. I was outdoor signing in um, in New Mexico, where he lives. And we uh, went out for drinks and tacos and ended up talking horror stuff. And we always said, at some point, let's work together on something. So when this came up, he was my... I think I suggested Aaron before just about anything. Um, I had suggested him for everything I've worked on at Marvel DC in the last two years, and it never came into anything. It's like, I owe you a gig. One of these will come together. He's doing the covers for this. And it's perfect because it's, it's coming after Infidel. So he's already got plenty of heat, and he's doing the work for me, so I don't have to do nothing. It's nice. And I just want to also mention Larry Stroman is doing an incentive cover. Yeah, I didn't know that was existing. That's awesome. I love Larry Stroman. He was drawing X-Factor when I was a kid, so that blows my mind. I didn't know that was a thing, but it's cool. Incentive cover by Larry Stroman. Folks, check with your retailer about that, what they have to do to get that incentive cover. Of course, it's all order-based, right? <laughs> it all is, yeah. <laughs> Now, you have some other projects that you're working on that are in progress or just wrapping up. One I read about recently, it is a Bloodshot special through Valiant for Free Comic Book Day. You're going to be working with Tomas Giorello. It's a one sort of off mass market, let's introduce Bloodshot to the world kind of story. And Tomas Giorello had drawn some of Lemire's stuff, his Bloodshot story. So he's pretty familiar. Yeah, it's just like a really back to basics, like this is our big chance to show everyone this character and uh, it's very much distilling the, what's cool about Bloodshot into one 12-page story. Yeah, I've been reading Bloodshot for years, so I like to see that character back to basics. I look forward to seeing that. And you're working on the Hack and Slash versus Chaos. That's through Dynamite. And what are you doing with that series that you haven't done in past series of Hack and Slash? What's different about this approach for you with that one? This has to be the biggest, craziest Hack Slash story ever because... Hexlash obviously is somewhat grounded in its own world, somewhat. I mean, weird shit happened. But mostly it's pretty street level. It's very small horror, you know, one on Cassie kind of one-on-one -on -one against uh, some crazy killer with a mask. But this is over the top and crazy. It involves a magical sword. She fights all of the Chaos characters one by one, basically. My treaties on, on what Chaos was when it came out of the 90s, and I, I loved it then was that it was basically if Jack Kirby was in a heavy metal band. <laughs> so pay homage to that great idea 
this is the most heavy metal Jack Kirby thing I could possibly do. So I'm dragging out all the tropes. I mean, there's Kirby Crackle and, and giant portals to other worlds and wars in heaven and, and everything else. It's crazy shit. Something else I think you're wrapping up is Shatterstar through Marvel. Yep. Now, I don't know a lot about Shatterstar, but this particular take on the character, did you do anything different to kind of get back to basics with Shatterstar to kind of strip it down and make it yours? Absolutely. The thing with the character is he's been, he spent a lot of time in, in X-Factor, um, so he's got a lot of connections to other characters, which is great, but it's really hard to do that when you're doing it in a solo story to have the character really enmeshed in a lot of other stories and stuff. So I kind of try to strip that stuff away and go back to what the original things were that Rob and Fabian introduced in New Mutants 99, I think it was. It was basically just he's a gladiator from space, not only from space, from the future in space. And he's a gladiator, and he has come to our world to try to get help to come back and free his world that's been overtaken by alien warlord. So strip all the stuff. And basically kind of just did a revenge story with this guy who has all kinds of crazy powers and, and crazy history, and but make it really personal. Like So I tried to do kind of a revenge story like Cosmic Gladiator John Wick, sort of. That was kind of the idea. You've been really busy. Yeah, I'm really tired, man. That's the thing is <laughs> I'm pretty wiped out. I, I've been kind of doing this thing for the last you know, almost 10 years where I just, I just write all the time because I'm just like full of – I was so – well, was. I was so full of ideas and so full of excitement. I just like I want to get it all on paper. And I found that after 10 years, you're sort of like, oh, shit, you just kind of annihilated, you know? Well, please don't burn out. <laughs> well, I mean, and the way that I solve it is, like, I try to do the balance. If I do something for Marvel DC, I try to take a creator-owned book to sort of balance that. If I do a book like The Injustice Masters of the Universe, which is pure joy for me, then I try to take a book that's more challenging, you know? So I'm always trying to just do this balance. Like, Masters of the Universe and Justice is easy for me because I know He-Man up and down, and I can write that every day for the rest of my life. So then if that's easy, then I have to do a book that's challenging. So it's like, I got to do Dark Red. We'll see how the, how I feel about my choices on doing this all together. But yes, I mean, I'm proud of all the books. I hope they're connecting. That's, you know, that's the tough thing is you just, you spend so, so much time making stuff, you don't really have a lot of time to, to sell it and you don't have a lot of time to see if people are responding to it. So that's the tough part. Well, I know you're tired, you're exhausted. So let's get to the fun questions. Now on a right. normal... As normal as it can be week for you, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I'm sure right now you just want to go to sleep, but <laughs> when there's some energy left and you can actually do something, what do you like to do? Fuck, I don't even remember. Um, I do like <laughs> – so in the summer, I mean I really like biking and, and going outside. I come from the country, so I still like the woods and stuff. In Chicago, for a major metropolis, has a surprising amount of parks and forests and stuff. So I like that. And then in the winter, my wife and I just watch so many movies. Kind of horror movies is, is my hobby and horror writing is my jobby, I guess. So <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see what else. I'm kind of a social guy. I like going out, having a few cocktails and bullshitting. I think I'm pretty simple that way. That's pretty much entirely my social or entirely my non-work life. It's like is like uh, movies and biking around and drinking is pretty much my <laughs> three. <laughs> And there's a balance there, too. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you think back to a birthday, which one was your favorite that stood out in your mind? and Why was that? <laughs> oh, man. This is sad, but I totally know it. <laughs> when I was seven years old, I had a birthday party, my first ever birthday party. And my mom had it at uh, they had a McDonald's Playland in my town, which is now completely gone. But I got to invite all my friends. It was super cool. 
But that was the year, like, Master Universe starts coming out more in stores. So every kid that I came brought me a He-Man guy because I knew that's what I wanted. And so, like, I went home from that party, like, I got to have a party at McDonald's. I got to run around all day and play and stuff. And I got, like, nine He-Man guys. Uh, <laughs> so it was the best. But my 40th birthday was pretty good, too. We had a big party uh, in my studio. And um, my wife did a, uh, like, a Brazilian dance thing. I can't, what's the uh, samba? She did a samba dance for everybody because she used to be a samba dancer. Ah. And Parents came, and uh, it was pretty cool. Now, if you think back to middle school, what posters and or pictures did you have on the bedroom wall? Would that include He-Man, perhaps? In middle school, no. (laughs) I can remember my room when I was 16 or 17 pretty well. I had a, I think 17, I had a giant crow poster from J.O. Barr. Let's see. And I had, I was pretty gothy. So I I had a crow poster. I had... A Machines of Loving Grace poster, the band I had. I think I had a RoboCop poster because it's also always been one of my favorites. And then I used to hang my comics, frame them and hang them up. So I remember I had uh, Giant the Homicidal Maniac one. I had Crow one. I had Scud one and Cyberfrog one on my wall when I was 17. I like that idea. I have one of those frames you can put a comic in close it you know and then put it up and then you can also change them out so rather than having all my books just shoved into a box i like to rotate the one i have hanging on my wall every once in a while that's a good idea yeah i think that's kind of what i did too i think that yeah they had those like flip tops or whatever i mean this is like 1993 or whatever so i don't think we had that technology then but i definitely put that kind of stuff around when i was like 16 17 i was really into indie stuff and they were more like treasures to me because they were hard to find then you know like i'd have to go to comic convention to get that crow number one or i'd have to put some work into it so they were kind of prizes you know this is the desert island book question you're stuck on a desert island what's the one book you want to have with you to read for pleasure oh boy um Man, I can't even think of a book, book, book. I gotta think of books. Now, it can be a trade or a graphic novel. It doesn't have to yeah, be your okay, traditional okay. book. I've been meaning to reread it again, so I'm gonna take it on the desert. I'm gonna take the Kirby Fourth World collection. See, all that stuff, just a big omnibus, that'll take me years to really sort of pour over because it's so beautiful and intricate. So, there you go. I'm taking Kirby's Fourth World. If there are any other people land on that island, I could start a religion based on that book, too. There's enough, <laughs> There's enough there. All right. And another hypothetical, if a toy company says, Tim, we're making an action figure of you, what is your accessory? An old fashioned. <laughs> okay, because that was my next question. What's your beverage of choice? That's oh, yeah, one. there you go. It's two, two for one. <laughs> yeah, like old fashioned or like a good Belgian beer or something. I can definitely go with like a, I don't know, some, or like a barrel aged uh, beer. There's a really good one, Kentucky Bourbon Barrel. I like that. Or Goose Island here in Chicago makes one that can always pour glass. I tried those bourbon barrel ones, and I, they're really good. I had a uh, a pumpkin one that was a bourbon barrel, so it wasn't very pumpkiny, but you could really taste that bourbon barrel aging of it. And I had one, and then I woke up and say, "What day is it?" Because <laughs> it was like, "Wham!" They're strong. Oh man, it's it, definitely strong. You are. Done. Don't plan to get any work done after that. Speaking of work, looking back on your entire career, your entire life, did you have any odd jobs that you had to take? Anything that was kind of really off the wall? In comics or just in life? Just in life, general. Anything like in college, whatever, at school, summer jobs, something that was a little off the beaten path. I had a lot of like crappy jobs. Like I worked at Burger King and Target and 
Michael's and I worked on a comic book store and I did all that stuff and movie theater. I did the standard uh, nerd guy jobs, but um, I also worked at a power plant that my dad worked at and my job was yard maintenance basically. And the yard of this place was so big that by the time I mowed it, I had to start over. So it would take like <laughs> it's my worst nightmare. <laughs> yes. Yeah, man, it was like just acres and acres of this giant place. And, but in the meantime, when I wasn't doing yard work, I would have to like help them out on stuff. So it would be like one of the trains flooded or whatever. And so all the coal would back up underneath in the hopper. So I'd have to like put on giant waist boots and then go down with a giant vacuum cleaner and stand in like three feet of totally black water and try to clean up all this coal water. Or like remember once was uh, one of the hoppers went down and it kicked back all this dust on the floor of this uh, upstairs silos. I had to go in there and it's like on this tiny little just a little pathway you have to walk across it and then sweep up all this coal dust and wear a respirator and shit. (laughs) And yeah, just like stuff like that, which was like so out of my, you know, doing maintenance stuff and all that sort of very physical shit. And like, I had plenty of time to think about comic book ideas while I was doing that job. Like 40 hours a week of just like thinking of shit. And sometimes I would be riding the lawnmower and the space would be so big. I wouldn't have to worry about running into anything. So I would just take out a notebook and while I was, the lawnmower was driving, I would write down all my ideas. So before texting and driving, you were writing it all. I was writing comics. Uh, Like, I remember taking notes sort of, I mean, I must have been 19, I guess, maybe, 20. I remember taking notes for the idea that would become Revival. It was like this giant woods outside where I could sneak away with the lawnmower and just park there and and, uh, and write like all these ideas down. And then it was this tiny little notebook. It would be full at the end of every summer. <laughs> you took a situation like that and made something out of it. You know, when the idea comes to you, you have to write it down. And this is some, a piece of advice. If you want to be a writer for everybody, the best thing to do for writing is be bored. Because <laughs> if you if there's nothing going on, like you, you have nothing sort of impacting your mind, your mind will entertain you for you. It'll start coming up with stuff. And like, being absolutely bored out of my mind on a lawnmower in the middle of nowhere was where I had most of my early ideas that became stuff. Elements of Hackslash were in there and elements of Revival were in there. So and I, I finally used up all that shit. Like now I have to make up new stuff. So I got to go be bored, I guess, is what I got to go do. Get a lawn job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, that's why I have to buy a house so I have a lawn so I have something to fucking mow. And then I can just drive around and get ideas. <laughs> my final question. You've done a lot of interviews. What is one question that someone has not asked you, something you want them to ask you about, something that people just don't know about you, and this is important, that you want them to know? <laughs> what is that thing? Oh, man. Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, I feel like people are pretty good about asking stuff, and I'm kind of an open book. It's like I don't keep a lot of a ton of shit private, I guess, you know? But I remember, someone asked me at one point, which I thought was, I don't know if I even answered, was like, what, what regrets do you have in your career? Uh, which I was like, oh, that's interesting because I never think about it. I just always like try to move forward and be like, but yeah, so like I thought that was an interesting question and I think I may have avoided it just to not think about it. But uh, what things have I made that I'm like, oh, I kind of regret that. That's an interesting question. Well, I think you're too young to decide yet. I think you're going (laughs) to retire and then look back and say, well, regrets, I've had a few and then mention what they are. But there's no time to stop and have regrets. Just press on. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. There we go. Tim, thanks so much. The book, Dark Red, is coming out on March 20th. And folks, that Larry Stroman incentive cover, I have the information right here. It's one in 10. So that's not bad. One out of every 10 will be that special cover, the main cover, Aaron Campbell. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Tim, for being on Creator Talks. Thanks for having me.
As longtime listeners know, I've interviewed comp book professionals with years of experience and a solid track record in the business, but I've also spoken to up-and-coming creators who are developing an understanding of what it takes to be successful in the comic book business. Next week, a previous guest returns to talk about an upcoming project that builds on the success of his freshman effort. Would you do me a small favor? Please join me and Caleb Palmquist as we talk about his upcoming Kickstarter that will give new readers an easy entry into the universe of a man who cannot die and his AI. Besides talking about the project, Caleb and I share stories and anecdotes I hope you enjoy. This interview, as well as all the others, are free, so subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or on YouTube. Also, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a star rating on iTunes and spread the word about Creator Talks to those who are also into comics. The more the audience grows, the more content I can produce for you. But for now, you can listen to a new show every Thursday. Plus, you can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And you can email me at contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. And on the website, I also have links to previous interviews. I have several more interviews already recorded, so I can't wait to bring those to you. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.